Science is real from the Big Bang to DNA. Science is real from evolution to the Milky Way. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Science of the Local podcast. My name is Hamish Clark, and this episode we're continuing our experiment in format. For those who tuned in last time, you may recall that we took a departure from the usual format, interviews with scientists, to try something different. This show borrows from, or to use a scientific term, parasitizes Le Show by Harry Shearer. Critics call it an iconoclastic stew of news and satire, and I can only hope that one day someone will describe this podcast as some kind of stew. This week we'll be talking about successful grants, remote imaging, and introducing a new feature, Breakthroughs of the Week. News of successful grants. Let's start with a grant that wasn't awarded. In the wake of the announcement of the federal government's marriage equality plebiscite, people are starting to list things that could have been spent with the estimated $122 million the postal plebiscite will cost. Uh, incidentally, list-making is one of the top five most common human activities online. According to News Corp, $122 million is close to double what the Cancer Council of Australia spent on cancer research grants. And now to grants that were awarded. The government has announced $1.9 million in funding for five citizen science projects to add to the $4.4 million that was announced last year. For those with a mathematics background, that comes to a grand sum of $6.3 million, which could pay for about one twentieth of a postal plebiscite. The awarded projects are Galaxy Explorer Forensics, an astronomy project led by the University of Western Australia, the National Waterbug Blitz, a freshwater biodiversity project led by Federation University Australia, the SWAC Network, that's Sydney Schools Weather and Air Quality Network, led by the University of New South Wales. Wild Orchid Watch, led by the University of Adelaide. And Pesticide Detectives, led by the University of Melbourne. While these are relatively small sums compared to other science funding, citizen science looks to be something that will grow. I have my doubts about the long-term viability of citizen science for a couple of reasons. First, it might lead people to start coming up with other ways to involve members of the public in matters of common interest, which does not sound like something in the national interest. Secondly, it has the potential to step on the toes of scientists, among whose ranks I proudly, or at least knowingly, stand. Scientists, after all, have to go through rigorous training and elaborate hazing rituals to arrive at their respected position within society. A citizen, on the other hand, merely has to be born... Or if they hail from overseas, they merely need to understand a little cricket history and the basic benefits of clean coal. So what happens when the two disagree? Ultimately, whether citizen science amounts to any good is a question for scientists, or perhaps citizen scientists. Overseas, and late last year, the European Union announced 45 million euro, or about 67 million Australian dollars, into research to combat the Zika virus disease and other emerging infections transmitted by mosquitoes. Funding will go to research on treatments, diagnostics and vaccines, as well as better risk assessment for Zika. Carlos Moedas, European Commissioner for Research, Science and Innovation, said, This funding will be a major boost to the international effort to stop the outbreak of the Zika virus disease and protect newborns as well as adults. Such outbreaks appear sudden, suddenly, and know no borders. 
This research is an example of how we can mobilise funding quickly to face major new threats and how we can lead a major research effort on a global scale. The majority of the funding, 30 million euro, will go to three research consortia. Zika Plan, coordinated by the Umea University in Sweden. Zika Action, coordinated by the Penta Foundation in Italy. And Zika Alliance, sensing a theme here, coordinated by INSERM in France. Researchers from Europe, Brazil, other Latin American countries and the Caribbean will collaborate in the consortia to fill the knowledge gaps on Zika infection and its consequences for pregnant women, newborn babies and adults. And they'll also develop improved diagnostic tests and investigate options for treatment and prevention. A quick background on Zika. The Zika virus is a mosquito-borne disease similar to dengue, yellow fever and West Nile disease. While infection often leads to mild symptoms, including fever and skin rash, there's now scientific consensus that the Zika virus causes, my <coughs> causes microcephaly and Guillain-Barr syndrome. Apologies for the poor pronunciation there. According to the World Health Organization, as of 20 October 2016, 23 countries or territories have reported microcephaly and other central nervous system malformations in newborns potentially associated with the Zika virus infection. And now, for Remotely Interesting. Nowadays, there's a serious amount of crap orbiting the Earth. Fortunately, some of it is extremely useful, and in the Remotely Interesting segment, we'll take a look at some of these products. Two academics have put forward a proposal to use remote sensing to police water use in the Murray-Darling Basin. 
If the allegations of water theft reported last week by the ABC's Four Corners are accurate, according to one of the researchers, they reveal a fundamental failing in the integrity of the system that records water use in the Murray-Darling Basin. We have a suggestion, this is the researchers speaking, that could help to restore trust that water users are not abusing the rights granted by their water entitlements and jeopardising the Murray-Darling Basin Plan by taking more than their fair share. Instead of the current system, this is still the researchers talking, in which state governments monitor consumption via water meters, we suggest that water users should instead have to fill in an annual water return, akin to tax returns. Have you done yours, listeners? To account for their water use, which could be efficiently verified using technology such as satellite imagery. These water returns could be randomly audited using satellite imaging and other spatial data to reveal the, hopefully few, that's the researchers still talking, cases in which actual water use does not appear to be consistent with the user's declaration. This would highlight places where more water than reported has been used, for instance where the amount of crop grown is inconsistent with declared water use, or where the amount of water in storage exceeds what the returns indicate. Once these disparities come to light, they could then be investigated, and I'm sure that would be a very politically dynamite investigation indeed. Another story from Remote Sensing, NASA's Earth Observatory is carrying a story about the fledgling field of space archaeology. They say, For centuries, if archaeologists wanted to find an ancient or mythical site, they trudged through desert sands or rainforest thickets armed with little more than rumours and hand-drawn maps. Incidentally, um, the host of this podcast is also armed with little more than rumours and hand-drawn maps. Uh, they wor- wor- worked from historical accounts and biblical texts and a lot of educated guesswork. But all of that changed in the late 20th century when some of them began using a new tool, remote sensing. By gathering data and images from satellites and aircraft, researchers began to uncover a wealth of new finds. Like the glow of a flickering bulb, images taken from above were shedding light on previously dark landscapes. The story goes on to say that with the development of airborne light detection and ranging... That's LIDAR, you may have heard of. Archaeologists gain perhaps their most powerful tool. LIDAR works by sending out laser pulses of light to measure the distance to a land or ice surface. Suspended from a plane or helicopter, the tool can generate precise elevation data that allows researchers to build three-dimensional maps of a landscape. LIDAR allowed us to see how big sites are, and that takes you in different directions said Arlen Chase, an archaeologist at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Chase and his wife, archaeologist Diane Zeno Chase. Incidentally, is there a higher than average marriage rate between archaeologists? I just have a a gut feeling that's the case, but it's completely without foundation. Um, Chase and his wife, Diane Zeno Chase, have been conducting excavations in Miso, America, for more than 30 years. Early adopters of LIDAR, they have uncovered thousands of ancient Maya artifacts and made several important discoveries, including Alta 21, which recorded the defeat of the ruling Tikal dynasty by the citizens of Caracol, and royal tombs that date back to 537 CE. LIDAR maps help them detect the outlines of sites that were covered by thick jungle vegetation and otherwise invisible to the naked eye.
It's now time for our conference call, where we go deep into the world of scientific conferences. CSR in Action hosted critical stakeholders, including Dr. Ibe Kachikwu, Minister for State of Petroleum Resources, and Dr. Kayode Faemi, Minister of State for Mines and Steel Development, and more than 500 delegates involving government representatives, private organisations, civil society organisations, academia, media, captains of industry and investors at the 6th Sustainability in the Extractive Industries Conference. Building Local for Global. Um, Building Local for Global is the uh, name, the kind of sub-name of the conference. And when you're running a conference, it's very important to have a catchy name. Building Local for Global. It was held on 19 to 20 July 2017. That's a two-day period. Uh, at the Nikon Luxury Hotel in Abuja. Now, deliberations at the event gave rise to a communique, which will guide the activities of the post-conference working group. Here's a little from the communique. Some of the major challenges in negating the transition of local refining and mining towards national and global competitiveness is minimal stakeholder engagement and collaboration as well as the lack of a guiding framework for the management of sustainability in the extractive industries. Well, I'm speechless. G'day! The International Society for Anthrozoology is excited to announce that its 27th International Conference, Animals in Our Lives, Multidisciplinary Approaches to the Study of Human-Animal Interactions, will be held from 2 to 5 July 2018 in Sydney, Australia. This will be the first time the ISAZ, International Society for Anthrozoology, has held a conference in the Southern Hemisphere, going down under. And we're warmly invited to join them at the Charles Perkins Centre at the University of Sydney. We're also warmly invited to take advantage of the legendary hospitality of Australia to present a paper, promote your human-animal organisation, or simply to satisfy your curiosity about human-animal interactions. Did you know anthrozoology is a multidisciplinary field and they welcome talks and posters from the arts and humanities, the social sciences and the natural sciences on any aspect of human-animal interaction and any species of animal using qualitative and or quantitative methods. Some of the topics they're interested in hearing about include, in no particular order, human-wildlife conflict and interactions, animals in human health and development, Interactions with invertebrate animals, grief studies, animals kept in zoos, visitor studies, attitudes towards zoos, animals used in farming, effects of stock persons on attitudes towards, that's attitudes towards animals used in farming, strategies to keep animals out of shelters and improve rehoming rates. I would have thought you just closed the doors of the shelters. Cultural and cross-cultural studies. For example, indigenous people's relationships with animals, attitudes towards animals and animal issues, animal personality research, representations of human-animal interaction, for example, art, literature and media, and their influence on human-animal interactions. Have you ever found you've been interacting with an animal and you've noticed that you've been influenced by a representation of an interaction with an animal? happens to me all the time. Historical aspects of our interactions with other animals, cruelty to animals, and the ethics of animal use. Stay tuned, folks. It's less than a year away. And now it's time for the data set of the week. 
Unfortunately, no one can be told what data set of the week is. You have to see it for yourself. In this segment, we speak about some of the amazing data sets, or data sets if you like, that are now publicly available for you to download, explore, analyze, visualize, internalize, and regurgitate. Because there's so much data to choose from, we narrow it down by focusing on a keyword, as determined by randomwordgenerator.com. And today's word is hang. And available now at data.gov.au is the Dictio Serrated Sponge Surveys and Experimental Sponge Farming in Arnhem Land, Northern Australia dataset. During late 2003, eight locations throughout Arnhem Land were surveyed for bath sponges. I assume these are creatures rather than actual sponges used in a bath. One sponge species, Cosinoderma, located at Sims Island and near the Warui community on South Goulburn Island, was considered to have quality spongin. Two additional sponge species, Ursinia gigantea from Manangrida and a Lafariella species, uh, and apologies to all ecologists and people with sensitive ears for my pronunciations, species from Sims Island were also used during the first stages of the project. The three species were experimentally farmed in collaboration with sea rangers from the Warui and Manangrida communities at Sims Island and Hall Round Island, respectively. The farming response of Cosinoderma was disappointing overall, which, with most explants dying within a few months. The distribution and farming results suggest that Cosinoderma requires very specific environmental conditions to survive and grow. Overall, bath sponge aquaculture in Arnhem Land is not commercially viable at this stage. Also available at data.gov.au, using the search term hang, is the park's playing surfaces dataset. The layer refers to polygons indicating the location of various types of playing surfaces, rugby fields, basketball courts, etc., on public land in the Gold Coast area. Now, please note that the city of Gold Coast is not a professional information provider, and neither am I the host of the podcast, and they make no representations or warranties about the accuracy, reliability, completeness, or suitability for any particular purpose, including this podcast, of the data provided here. And it's not provided with the intent that any person will rely on it for the purpose of making decisions with financial or legal implications, um, such as running your own street basketball competition, maybe, with high stakes. Um, And persons who place such reliance on the data do so at their own risk. And this playing surface data set is available in a range of formats, including CSV, JSON, and ZIP. And now, a new segment here in the Science of the Local podcast, Breakthroughs of the Week. Going to break something, might as well be through. Dateline Tokyo and Mazda has announced a breakthrough in a long-coveted petrol engine technology. From 2019, it plans to sell cars with compression ignition engines, a type of cleaner, more fuel-efficient petrol engine. Dateline Texas, IBM has announced a breakthrough in deep learning performance using new distributed deep learning software. Deep learning is a widely used AI method to help computers understand and extract meaning from images and sounds through which humans experience much of the world. Do you, dear listener, experience much of the world through images and sounds? Deep learning holds promise to fuel breakthroughs in everything from consumer mobile app experiences to medical imaging diagnostics. But progress in accuracy and the practicality of deploying deep learning at scale is gated 
by technical challenges running massive deep learning based AI models with training times measured in days and weeks. The new software set a new record for image recognition accuracy, 33.8%. Incidentally, the same accuracy I have in recognizing people I've met only once. And this was based on a test data set of 7.5 million images. Dateline Sydney, people at high risk of HIV could soon get access to a breakthrough preventive drug as federal health authorities revisit their decision to refuse a taxpayer subsidy. HIV advocates say the antiretroviral drug is so popular among gay men, the people most likely to contract the virus, according to the article, that it could slash the number of transmissions across the country and is believed to be up to 99% effective in preventing HIV infection. But at the moment, the drug is prohibitively expensive, about $1,200 a month, for those who are not part of government-funded trials. Dateline Ohio. Scientists have hailed a breakthrough technology capable of regrowing damaged organs and healing serious wounds with a single touch of a penny-sized pad. For our listeners in Australia, that's a five-cent coin, uh, roughly. The new device uses nanochips to reprogram skin cells, which then generate any type of cell necessary for medical treatment. The non-invasive procedure takes less than a second, and in laboratory trials was found to restore the function of badly damaged blood vessels within days. Dubbed tissue nanotransfection, or TNT, I'm afraid that acronym is already taken, the technique works by placing a small pad of nanochips over a damaged area. A small electric current then fires DNA into the skin cells, whoa, converting them into the specific building block cells of any other part of the body, such as arteries or even organs like the heart. It promises to transform the chances of patients in need of complex reconstructive surgery, as well as those whose organs are prematurely aging. The US researchers who created the the technology say it could even be used as a weapon against neurological diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Dateline Hong Kong. A team led by the Education University of Hong Kong has revealed for the first time that hypoxia, a deficiency in oxygen, can cause transgenerational reproductive impairment in fish. This major breakthrough in environmental science was the result of a four-year joint project with team members from four other Hong Kong universities. And this testimony to EDUHK, that's the Education University of Hong Kong, testament to their high-quality research with global impact. From 2012 to 2016, the team compared the reproductive ability of marine medaka fish and the subsequent three generations of their offspring raised in seawater under normal and low levels of oxygen. The important discovery has been published in the authoritative scientific journal Nature Communications. Team leader Professor Rudolf Wu, research chair, professor of biological sciences, said that recent climate change has caused the sea temperature to rise and oxygen level to drop. This, together with a large amount of nutrient-rich wastewater being disposed of in the ocean, has caused excessive phytoplankton growth, which has led to hypoxia. You've been listening to the Science at the Local podcast, available on iTunes, soundcloud.com, slash science at the local, and all good podcast providers. Science at the Local is not just a podcast, it's also a series of bi-monthly talks by expert and engaging scientists delivered in a cosy setting to the good folk of the Blue Mountains. To find out more, go to www.facebook.com slash science at the local. Science at the Local is run by me, Hamish Clark, and Kevin Joseph. We're supported by Springwood and Mimoulin Neighbourhood Centres, and in 2017 by the Inspiring Australia Program of the Commonwealth Government. By listening to this podcast, you agree to our end-user licence agreement.
Science is real from the 